Good morning to you. So good to be singing with you. I just love Sunday mornings, as I mentioned quite often. There's just nothing so refreshing as hearing God's people belt out the truth together in a corporate setting. I just love that so much. And of course, that's always prep for our hearts as we come to God's word. So you know we've been in Luke 18, so take your Bibles and let's look there. The 18th chapter of Luke, and I received so many comments this last week, uh, cards and notes, um, some texts and emails about some of the practical things we were talking about last week with respect to what we've been studying here in this text. We've been dealing with the matter of pride in our hearts, and I was uh, reminded of it again as Dan was telling us about the law of God. It is true that when the law of God was presented to uh, God's people uh, all through their existence, it, it did what only the law of God can do. It, it is a holy standard. It is a holy and righteous thing. And then the human heart being fallen and without the ability to, on its own, respond righteously in every way ends up exposed. When you come across the law of God, you end up exposed. When we were raising our kids, we, we basically gave them the truth of God straightforward from the whole counsel of God. It didn't bother us whether it was a passage about the grace that's found only in Christ or a passage about the law of God and what God's standard is. All of it was important to put upon the hearts of our children so that they would see their need. And of course, you realize what rules and regulations and commands and a holy standard does to the sinner. Paul would say in Romans 7, it just agitates the sinner and stirs up the pride in his heart because, not because the law itself is sinful, but because we have corruption within us and we, we are constantly self-worshipping and self-exalting. And when, when God's truth is presented to us and he is the only one worthy and he's the only one we're to worship, the human heart rails against it in its sin. That is the principle of sin within us. Further, I might add, condemning us. The moment we hear the law of God and have no grace to, to overcome it in Christ, we hear it and are condemned by it, by our very railing against it, the pride that rises up in our hearts against it. And so it was normal and natural then that some of you would would write or give a note or whatever and say, man, it is so difficult to talk about the way that even after we've come to Christ, we, we still sin in the area of pride. It's just all over our lives. It's pervasive. And of course, that is why we sing such praises to Christ because now having been rescued from the condemnation of the law, we've also been saved by the power of Christ from the the sway of sin, from sin's ability to overpower us. In and of ourselves, we are dominated by it, in bondage to it. In the grace of Christ, we're now no longer under its domination and its power and its sway. But it is also true, as we have been studying Luke 18, and Jesus is confronting the pride that keeps people from the gospel, we're suddenly aware that even having come to Christ, there are still these manifold ways that we express the very opposite of humility. And so you remember in Luke 18, Jesus uses a little child. In, in Luke's account, at, at one point, an infant. They were bringing infants, these burdened parents, to Christ for a rabbinical blessing. And of course, aside from the disciples' snobbish approach to the whole thing and imagining that Jesus didn't have time for that, Jesus pulls the children in to use them as a gospel illustration. And it was an illustration both of God's heart toward someone that is open and trusting and humble, as well as a, a way of pointing to the very, the very analogy to challenge the proud heart around him. If you do not come to Christ and receive the teaching of the kingdom, the word of his kingdom, the word of his righteousness, receive the gospel like a child, you will have no part in the kingdom. Our thanks so much to 
Professor Mike Vlock, who has been teaching this past entire weekend on this great subject about which he has written much. It's such a thrill to see the wonderful course of scripture moving the redemptive plan toward the reign of Christ in his kingdom. But you'll have no part in that, Jesus says, if you do not come as a child. How does a child come? In humility and faith. A child, and the infant was the graphic illustration because the infant has absolutely no way to preserve self or exalt self or meet its own needs. And so in humility, you don't come with self-exaltation, but an attitude of openly receiving, just like an infant openly receives the one upon whom they are dependent. And then this faith that is embedded in the entire analogy, genuine faith, openly receiving the truth from God as the only life-giving source, like an infant receives everything from its mother as the only source for its care. This is what Jesus meant, to come as a child. It was exactly what our Savior did in his earthly ministry. He humbled himself, and he called us to that same attitude, and he completely trusted in his Father's will and submitted himself to it, calling us to that same trust. And so we saw last time that that our goal in the Christian life is to strive to grow in grace by practicing those two things, just boiling it down, to cultivate and nurture humility as we've seen over and over again in this gospel and to trust in the Lord more faithfully in those times when we're tempted to trust ourselves, some earthly thing. We are to have kingdom attitudes here and now. And we boiled it down this way. Humility sees oneself rightly before God and faith relies on God exclusively. Faith is grounded in the character and person of God and humility acknowledges it and believes it and a person who's humble their life manifests it now we looked at last time how to grow in humility by looking at its opposite and and mentioning the fact that we have to be aware of when we're being proud why well for for one thing pride is blinding and it piles up on itself as we saw last time but more, more than that, we're influenced by a culture that, that casts pride as, as excusable, justifiable, perhaps even virtuous. And that has, of course, leaked into the church. The church, unfortunately, doesn't always curb it with strong preaching and strong body life and strong discipleship and good leadership and good parenting and godly homes. The church those who profess Christ can often be found in weakness, dr- having drifted for generations into, into shallowness and, and a wrong view of the sins that God calls out in Scripture, particularly as it relates to pride. And then pride itself is uh, a sin that's going to, at its core, excuse itself. So we're, we're prone to not only have pride, but then blame shift, which is itself another expression of pride. We're prone to have pride and then excuse it, which in and of itself is another expression of pride, layer upon layer. And we often grieve over it, but then we have the triple problem of not really repenting genuinely of it. Uh, Genuine repentance is a work of Christ, but when it happens, it is manifested in brokenness and humility as is illustrated by David's own life in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And so last time we took a practical look of, at some of the ways that pride manifests itself, and I suppose any time we have to look that close and in that practical way at, at our manifestations of pride, then we are left with only one recourse, and that is to run to Christ to run to him. In fact, it's very, very uh, crucial that in our daily Christian life, all of our sin, but particularly manifestations of pride, drive us to our only hope, to drive us to what we were singing about. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Everything is about this work of redemption from God the Father through our Savior and by his power in his Holy Spirit. 
Everything is about Christ. And the more you consider Christ and ponder Christ, the more uh, you do that in faith and submissiveness, the more your humility grows without you really knowing it. It isn't so much that you say, all right, I'm going to nurture humility and I'm going to be humble. And then you go about cranking out humility or, or you take all those practical manifestations of pride we looked at last week and you just say, all right, I'm going to do the opposite. That may be true and the desire of your heart, but without Christ as the ground, without believing what the scriptures say about Christ, not only in his redeeming work, but every aspect of his person, you will be you will be probably quicker than you imagine moving into some sort of self-righteousness, some sort of prideful uh, boasting about how humble you are. (laughs) This is, of course, one of our perennial problems. So it is fitting that we just look at Christ as we come to the scriptures in order to nurture this childlike humility and faith We want to measure ourselves by the Lord Jesus. Yes, we want to know when we're being proud, confess it as sin, but measure ourselves not by others, not even by our own self-assessment, as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 4, not to do, not to measure ourselves and our spirituality by how we feel or even the words that come out of our mouth. We are to measure ourselves by the Lord Jesus always by Christ. Isaiah would reflect upon this in chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, when God says, who is going to, who's going to build a, a house of worship for me, a, a body, a people, a, a plan of redemption, a redeemed work, a, a kingdom of righteousness? Who's going to do that for me, he says, when the earth is my footstool? I'm the sovereign God. I created everything. These things are the work of my hands, he says. But he will look to his people if they are truly manifesting what his people are supposed to manifest. And he says it in Isaiah 66, verse 2, to him who is, right out of the gate, humble. That's the person to which I will look. To him who is contrite of spirit. And we've studied that before. It is a confessional life. Constantly confessing who we are before God and who he is as our sovereign Lord. Humility sees itself rightly and contrition confesses it. That we're sinful and that we're prone to it. And without him we would have no hope of holding on to this great work of redemption. And then of course Isaiah concludes with, I look to those who come to my word in fear, not in fear of judgment, but in fear and reverence of its, of its holy nature. This is the word of God. This is God's voice to his people. This is his message to his people. And we're to be trembling at it, just as that imagery would have hit the Old Testament saint. Uh, as, as sort of the image of Israel around the mountain, trembling before God. Of course, they were trembling and cowering in fear, and we are to come before God's word trembling at its holiness and at its purity and its righteousness, knowing that he has given us his grace to come to it and to understand it. We're to tremble at his word. We're to humble ourselves. We are to be those who live in a state of confession and contrition about who we are before him and who he is as our God. So look for a moment at Hebrews 12. We'll just course through a few passages here as we think about measuring ourselves by the Lord Jesus. We won't belabor each one of these categories we're going to look at, but it would be helpful just to sort of get them as a package. Notice in Hebrews 12 that if we're going to run the race with endurance, verse 1, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're running while fixing our eyes on Christ. That's the verbal idea here. As we are running and laying aside the excess things that will drag us down in the race, and as we're laying aside the sin which we already know easily entangles, 
while we're running this race and enduring in it because it is set before us as a redemptive race until we meet Christ, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, of whom it is said he is the author of our faith. That is to say he is the the one who went out before us. He's the one who took the plan of redemption to its utmost. He loved us to the end, to the nth degree. So he set the pace, he blazed the trail, he went out before us, he's the author of it. And he is also the one who perfects our race, our run with endurance, our faith. We're to fix our eyes on him. And then it says a little bit about what he accomplished. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And we've, we've studied this text before. And now he is in that exalted place at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verse 3. For consider him. Whatever he endured in striving against sin, we as his followers are to consider him and endure whatever hostility we may endure that we do not lose conviction. And I would put right at the center of that aspect of not losing conviction, this humility that's required. If you're going to be empowered by Christ as a humble Christian, it has to be in this manner that you consider him in faith. You consider what he endured. You consider that he did not grow weary in his striving against sin, even to the point of shedding blood, so that you don't lose heart. So we measure ourselves by the Lord Jesus in that we consider him. That is what we do. This is, this is our purpose and plan. If you want to cultivate and nurture humility. We've looked at lots of ways to do that as we've sort of taken passages in Luke's gospel and launched off of them into discussions of it. But behind it all is this picture of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, I, I just sort of course through in my mind aspects of the Lord's work, this, this great joy set before him, this redemptive work he did, I just like to course through certain aspects of it, and I'll just give them to you, six of them. These are the, the, the things that I believe you could consider in faith, not merely ponder, not merely meditate on in terms of mental knowledge, but to actually believe them and submit to them. These are truths about Christ and what he has done that give us endurance in the race this is what it means to fix your eyes on Christ, and this is what produces humility. The first, of course, would be the incarnation of Christ. It is what he condescended to do. The first place you look when you want to nurture humility in your life is the condescension of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the fact that he foreloved us and set a plan in place so that he might come and be one of us, take on human flesh, as Philippians 2 says. The incarnation, where it says that he became flesh and dwelt among his people. And it says in John 1, verse 14, that we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He brought the full expression and exposition of grace, the full expression and exposition of truth, and lived it as one of us, and rose as one of us. This was stunning condescension. You cannot be proud yeah, you cannot grow in your pride and blind in your pride if you consider the Lord Jesus in his condescension. There is just absolutely no getting around this, that in his incarnation, he condescended because of a love for us before the foundation of the world. He came from the glories of heaven as we've often studied in Philippians 2. He took on human flesh he went behind the veil of human flesh. He, he left heaven and the free prerogatives of his glory as God that he might serve a purpose, a redemptive purpose 
which would take him to earth to live as one of us. This is God of very God. And he came to us in order to demonstrate to us what love really is. In fact, in John 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Notice that middle phrase in John 13, 34, even as I have loved you. His love began before the foundation of the world, fixed upon his people, and it resulted in a condescension, an incarnation whereby he left those glories to meet our need. And so he can say it's a new commandment. I'm wanting you, he says, to love like that. I'm wanting you to condescend, get out of your self-glory, leave your own importance and deny yourself and follow the Lord Jesus in loving others in that same way. Jesus essentially was saying, as you've known me thus far, where I obey the Father and his will, I love the Father and I love mercy and I'm patient and I'm kind and I'm compassionate and sacrificial. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He left heaven to humble himself. So there was a self-giving. There was a selflessness, a self-sacrifice as he went toward the cross. And so in that same fashion, he says, I want you to live that same way. And when you understand my work, I want you to see it as a new commandment to do the same thing. You obey the Father's will. You humble yourself and love God and love mercy and love patience and kindness and compassion and sacrifice. You love those things. When I think about how difficult it is to live that way, it's no wonder that we struggle in this because we're to consider the Lord Jesus. And how many of us, if asked off the cuff, could give a, a brief summary of the truths surrounding his incarnation, his coming to earth, the humility of it, the condescension of it? How many of us could summarize that? We ought to be able to as the people of God. You want to nurture humility. You must consider and measure yourself by the Lord Jesus in his self-humbling, in his incarnation, in his coming. He came to live in our infirmities. And right out of the gate, John 1 says that he, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to a fallen world, to a place of darkness, to humble himself and grow up as a man, coming as an infant, which we will celebrate this next month. The riches of his coming in condescension are to inform our humility on a practical level. He did not seek his own in those things, and yet here we are at times seeking our own. He condescended to the needs of others, um, not thinking about his own needs, and so often we are thinking about our own needs first. And so it is his incarnation that we consider that humbles us. That leads, of course, to a second aspect of this, and it's just the sheer submission of it the sheer submission of it. You know it from Mark's gospel, chapter 14, when Jesus says in the garden, Father, if there's some other way, I mean, we've talked about this, there was a recoiling in the Lord's heart. There was a recoiling at the very idea that his pure relationship with his father, his intimate, perfect reciprocal love between he and the Father, his friendship and delight at an infinite and holy level with his Father would be severed. And there was a recoiling of it. The very idea of a foreign guilt put upon him whereby his Father would then sever that relationship with the Son of Man whereby he would be utterly rejected 
and separated from this great intimate walk with his father, with whom he had sweet fellowship all of his life. Of course, it was an eternal fellowship, so it had a mysterious aspect we cannot plumb the depths of, we cannot enter into. And you're struck by the submission of Christ. If there's some other way, let this pass from me. Yet, if this is the way, if this is the way to meet the need, if I can't be spared this and not accomplish and, and accomplish redemption, some other path, if being severed from you will meet their need, if my poverty is their riches, not my will. but yours. And how often when we want to nurture humility, the obstacle that stands in the way in those moments is us saying to other human beings, I want my will. And the scriptures tell me to do this, but I want to do this. And here is the Lord Jesus. We are to fix our eyes on him to run with endurance. We're to consider him who endured such hostility. And for the joy set before him, the, the redemptive work being completed, to get to the end of that severing moment and to hear him say it is finished. This is what he looked for. This is the joy set out before him through which then he submits his will to his father. That's what he's asking us to do. You want to learn humility and be open to receiving the work that he's doing in your life, to be like a child who says, okay, Lord, I know this is your purpose, and as painful as it's going to be, and as agonizing as, as the future looks, and as bleak a plan as it may seem, and, and as, as much as I'm recoiling at the purpose that you have in it, here is my problem, Lord. I, I don't want to submit my will and I need your grace and strength to bring me under it as my Lord was brought under it for my sake. That is nurturing a humility, just the submission of Christ. We know that in those moments the full fury of hell came at him to tempt him away from it. We know that because all of world history marched toward that moment as God had promised, Hebrews chapter one, verse one. All the prophets of old had proclaimed God's promise in writing that it would happen, so all of the force of God's truth through all the millennia was bearing down in that moment. Jesus was on the earth and he claimed to be the fulfillment of God's promise. John 12, 31, the ruler of this world shall be cast out. He said it. He said it boldly and blatantly. The ruler of this world is going to be cast out. In order for that to happen, he had to have submission in his heart and in his purposes. And God's power was testifying through Jesus that the Redeemer had arrived. All that he did in his work, all the sermons he preached, all of the faithfulness in his representing the power of God on earth in the Messiah, all of it was here, including the promises of his rule and his reign. Redemption had to happen. The force of all that was weighing down on him. And we know that that agony was profound because Satan wanted to thwart it and wanted him silenced and cast out and embarrassed and rendered powerless, forced to submit, exposed as a deceiver. This is essentially what was coming against him. And he kept saying the hour had come and we know that the power of sin and death was itself at stake as Hebrews 2.14 says because the death of Christ rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that is Satan himself. And his father's credibility and character was at stake in that moment. God said to Satan that divine power is greater. Even the proof of the power of God being greater was at stake. And so there Jesus was in the, in the crosshairs of that conflict 
And he said, not my will, but yours be done. Look, if you want to cultivate humility, then don't just meditate on the knowledge of it. Don't just ponder it. There's a whole idea today that you can just sort of meditate on the truth of Christ and ponder it, and that will be enough. No, how do you know you pondered it unto effective humility unless you submit? That is the whole point. Jesus knew his Father's will. He pondered his Father's will, meditated on his Father's will, even prayed often for the will of his Father to be done. But the only way we know that that pondering and that meditation was effectual was when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. If you're going to learn humility against all those manifestations of pride that we talked about last time, you're going to have to die to your will. That leads to a third, and that is the humiliation of Christ. Look at Philippians 2, where we've been many times, but just a brief relook at it for a moment. The humiliation of Christ. I already mentioned that he did not consider his godhood, equality with God, something to be clutched. But he did take on human flesh and in so doing emptied himself. That is to say, he set aside for such a time as the work of redemption the use of his divine prerogatives in that way and submitted himself to the purposes of his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 8 that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, and here it is, to the point of death, even death on a cross even death on a cross, Stauron, the, the tense of these connecting verbs indicate that the cross here is a reference to the fact of Christ's death. So when Hebrews says that he despised the shame, he thought less of the cross's disgrace in light of the glory out front of him. So the cross was a curse, Galatians 3.13 says. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been our curse. Because it had been written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is why in Isaiah, when the prophet says in Isaiah 53, verse 4, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We ourselves esteemed him stricken. Yes, in, in the fleshly human mind, everyone believed his punishment was deserved because they saw him as a phony. But the reality is God had given his son into the hands of sinful men to have that sinful Humanity converge violently upon him with a criminal's punishment. So in that sense, he was smitten by God, smitten of God, and afflicted of God. We deemed him worthy of it because we thought he was a sinner. God put it on him, not because he was a sinner, but because he, God was putting upon him the iniquity of us all, our guilt our guilt. This is the humiliation of Christ. He came and died on a cross by being obedient to the purpose of redemption. The obedience, the purpose of it was to be humiliated for our sakes, to suffer the curse of sin upon himself. Listen, the wages of sin is death, physically and spiritually. The reason the church has gotten soft on the gospel is because we really have pondered that but don't believe it. The church largely dumbed down the gospel because we didn't want to believe that there were wages to sin that serious. And of course, the necessity of the cross begs that issue. Look, why was the cross necessary if sin was not that kind of an offense? 
No wonder cults and false religions turn the cross into some just humanitarian thing. I remember sitting with a Buddhist distant relative and um, they had been over into the Tibetan wilderness and had become this Buddhist nun and we were sitting there at my kitchen table talking about the whole thing and we had a a statement on the refrigerator that was a bold proclamation about the, the atoning work of Christ and this person involved in false religion got highly offended at it. I said, what is offensive about it? Well, it's offensive because it is the life of Christ that matters, not his death. Which is to say, as all false religions say, that death means nothing. It's, it's a death in ignominy. It shouldn't have been that way. All their gurus should live forever as, as the, the renown of mankind, the self-actualization of human beings, the ability to become a demigod yourself. That's how they view Jesus. I began to open the scriptures and talk about the substitutionary work of Christ because the humiliation of Christ in his death is the issue because the wages of sin is death. No false religion wants to see the wages of sin as death at all. But Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, we do see him who's been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why? Because it, it involved a separation. Look, if the wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual, he had to die physically, and his, his uh, holy, innocent self had to be severed from the Father. The only way for that to happen is for our guilt to be placed upon him. He remained innocent and holy. But in his humanity, with a body fashioned for bearing sin took upon himself our guilt and he was forsaken by his father whom he loved perfectly. When I began to talk with this relative about the substitution of Christ, the conversation was over. She began to chant in voices not her own, it seemed to me. And I said, that's it, you're done. This visit is over. We turned a week's visit into about two days that fast. It's how sad. That is the next reality of Christ that you must believe and submit to is his substitutionary atonement. He's our substitute. He's our substitute. This isn't just merely about his incarnation and his submission and his humiliation, but... You cannot see pride nurtured and become blinding if you are thinking about the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. The truth of the atonement centers around this idea that he is a substitute and it is a penal substitution, which is to say Christ accepts our eternally deserved punitive separation from a holy God. Christ welcomed it to himself. He accepted what we deserved punitively, a separation from a holy God forever. And so he becomes our substitute because he accomplishes in our place everything that's necessary for us to be fully reconciled as if we never sinned. You cannot nurture pride when you are believing that. He was hated and rejected. I should be hated and rejected. His life was saturated with the sorrow and grief of sin's destructiveness. Here I am living in Christ, an earthly life, and I get to be a testimony for him. Oh, sure, I experience sin and the sorrow and grief of it, but I'm completely forgiven of all of it, and I have actually power to see my life transformed away from it. When I meet Christ, it'll be completely gone, but its power has no sway over me. Christ's life was completely immersed in sorrow and grief as he began to, to demonstrate what it would mean to take on our griefs and our sorrows on the cross. He carried them. He took up our weaknesses and carried them, a substitute for us in that way. 
And the prophet said he bore our iniquities, that all of them were caused to fall on him. Every offense ever committed by every sinner who ever believes in Christ for their salvation, all of those sins and their offenses were caused to fall upon him. That idea is rife throughout scripture. Do you know he had to obey perfectly in order to be that substitute? I mean, how would you like to live under the law, Galatians 4, 4, obligated to obey it in all, all of it in order to approve that you're the, be, be approved by the Father as the perfect sacrifice, and yet you know as you're living righteously, it isn't going to self-justify you. Sure, you're innocent. God the Son is innocent, and he was perfectly righteous and fulfilled it all. But when he laid his life down, I mean, as he was living according to the law, he knew he would lay his life down and bear our guilt. So he lived, how would you like to live your whole life perfectly and then for all sinners for all time who, who believe in you for their salvation, you're going to be punished for them. I mean, the, the mere idea offends our sense of justice as it ought to because this is a marvel how God can be both just and then declare the sinner justified, as Romans 3 says, only through a substitute. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, now mark it down. When you, when, when you see Christ going up the Mount of Doom, you see a man going there. And when you see Christ hurled upon his back upon the wooden cross, you see the whole company of his elect there. And when you see the nails driven through his blessed hands and feet, it is the whole body of his church who are there. In their substitute, they are nailed to the tree. And now the soldiers lift the cross and dash it down into the socket prepared for it. His bones are every one of them dislocated and his body is thus torn with agonies which can't be described. Tis manhood suffering there. Tis the church suffering there in the substitute. And when Christ dies, you're to look upon the death of Christ not as his own dying merely, but as the dying of all those for whom he stood as the scapegoat and the substitute. How can we remain proud in our treatment of one another, proud before God in some self-righteous way when we had to have a substitute? The necessity of the cross drives us to, to practice in our hearts and in our, in our obedience a humble faith. Fifthly, his resurrection. Romans 6 says that he, he rose from the dead that we might be raised in resurrection power. I love this thought. Paul says that we've been buried with him through baptism into death, verse 4 of Romans 6, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, here it is, we too might walk in newness of life. What could be more humbling than that? He died and was raised from the dead. I, I didn't raise him from the dead. I have no power to raise myself or him or accomplish redemption. I can't climb to heaven on my own. I can't fashion a redeemer and bring him down, Paul would later say in this volume. But he says, Christ was raised through the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. How could I be proud if every act of obedience, every blessing in my life, every kind grace from God manifesting itself in my life is because he rose from the dead to give me power to walk in a new way. That is the point. Not just that I can walk in newness of life and experience victory over sin, but that he was the power in it. He is the resurrection life given to the believer. I'm united with him in the likeness of his death and therefore united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Look, my old self was crucified. How could I be proud when he's the one that died and my old self is crucified with him? And what about, 
You say, well, what about faith and repentance? Aren't those things that I do in order to have this great grace? Well, Ephesians 2 indicates that all of that was granted by Christ to you. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God and not of yourselves. Look, it is a gift. The whole package of redemption is a gift. I cannot see my sin, want God righteously and with faith and genuine repentance without the power of God opening my eyes to see it, without the truth of God providentially brought to me in some way. Otherwise, I perish. I'm blind. I love my sin. I love myself. I worship myself, exalt myself. God must do the work and he does it. How could any of us be proud and continue to nurture pride when he has given us all of the redemptive work, but particularly resurrection power. Resurrection power. It's a marvel. Whenever you, you say no to sin, do you see that as a miracle of your redemption? Or do you see that as just another thing I got to grind out just another command I got to obey. Or some of you might think, well, of course, of course I obey. Sure, I'm a Christian. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm getting so mature, I wonder why God doesn't use me more. Look, if you see resurrection power in your life, it's pride crushing. Lastly, his exaltation. His exaltation. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We're to consider that, Hebrews says. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of absolute sovereign authority. Philippians 2 says he is exalted above every name. And at his lordship, at the calling out of his lordship in praise, at the calling out of his name, that he is the sovereign one, the sovereign Lord, the eternal one. He is the one who created the universe. He's the one who upholds everything in his hands. By the Father's will, he is fashioned as our redeemer. And he, the second member of the Trinity has now become one of us. In resurrection power, he is declared the son of God now and he reigns and will reign forever as God and as man. And by the power of his Holy Spirit manifested, he sovereignly rules. How could any of us rise up in some sense that we're the captain of our own world, our own life? I can do what I want. I can redefine scripture. I can read its pages or not read its pages. It's optional. It's casual. I can be a part of God's body and, and serve in the body or I don't have to. I, I can rail against God for taking away my job or I, I might not. It just depends on how I'm feeling. I can, I can study a doctrine and and be upset with God if I want because he wasn't clear enough or I don't like this doctrine or I don't like that person or I'm not, I don't go to that church or I've been burned over here. How can any of those things exist in our hearts if he has the name above every name? This is why God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Why? Because he says that his son has the name which is above every name. And that at that name, every knee would bow. That's you and me. Why not bow more and more each day now? Why not walk in newness of life now? Why not recognize that we have a salvation given to us by a substitute who was punished for us? Why not humble ourselves as our Savior did by becoming obedient and a curse for us? Why not live for him now? If his poverty was my riches, why not honor him for being my Substitute now. Why not 
submit to his will as he submitted to his father's will. Why not do that now? Why not recognize that when he came, he condescended and left the privileges that were his so that you and I might be redeemed? Why not let go of our petty preferences and assumed privileges and sense of entitlement in order, in order to follow our Lord in what he calls us to do? You don't need to ponder this and wait for some reaction in your emotional life, though I suspect when you believe God truly, it will overwhelm you. But what you must do is come to the truth of Scripture in humility, tremble at his word. We don't ponder Christ enough in these wonderful aspects of his work on our behalf. That's why we struggle so much with humility. His incarnation is what he condescended to do. His submission is what he proved that he was willing to do. His humiliation is what he had fully endured in order to accomplish it. His substitution is what he became in order to do it. His resurrection is what he promised about the power of it. And his exaltation is what he deserves and he alone for having accomplished what he came to do. And by this, we, the scriptures say, are to be humbled so we don't lose heart. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for the grace of these wonderful summary looks, these at times just biblical glances, really. May we plumb the depths. May we think about it. May we consider you. May we fix our eyes on you. And on a practical level, that just means coming to your word more often, learning these things so that we can have them course through our minds, hiding your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And, and then in the moment, submitting to your purposes and your word as you did of your Father's will. Lord, let it not be to us just a, a marvelous, mysterious reality, but let it be to us the, the burning of our hearts within us to, to run the race with endurance and consider you and fix our eyes upon you rightly. Thank you that you teach us by analogies, even taking the life of a little infant and holding him up to the crowd to say, unless you come like this little one, you will not enter the kingdom. Lord, what a grace in giving us your truth so that we might know you intimately. We came to you in that day of our conversion, humble and believing. Help us to increase in those graces in humility and faith so that we aren't filled with obstacles and pride that blinds and dumbing down our understanding of sin and excusing these things so that we pass the fear of you to the next generation properly. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.